today's scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Thank you, Brother Chang, for that heartfelt reading. I felt that. That was good. We will now have Pastor Francis uh, come and give uh, the prayer for illumination and the sermon. Let's uh, greet him with a warm round of applause. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you so much for just everything that you do for us in our lives. Sometimes we forget to be grateful for the things that we take for granted, uh, even just being able to come you know, with health, with friends and family, that we are, and we ought to be more grateful. And uh, to give us this opportunity to take a break from the hustle and the bustle of our daily and busy schedules to recollect our thoughts and uh, to, again, be reminded of the great picture that you paint for us since from the beginning of time. And so, Lord, as we hear your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and minds so that we might be encouraged, be challenged, be convicted again, to be steadfast in our faith, to grow, uh, to be thoughtful, to engage, and, uh, Lord, to, to live our lives out in light of what you say, who you say we are, and what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's uh, just made me say that it's a privilege for me to be here. Um, I, you probably, many of you probably do not know, do not know me personally, but um, I am uh, college friends with Pastor John. Uh, I know he's not, is he here? Is he? Is he? <laughs> he's on, so from what? <laughs> anyway, so I know Pastor Sam is your uh, is your pastor, and I think he's away. Am I correct? In China, and he's teaching, and so I'm sure you miss him. And so you've been getting are getting these guest speakers who you don't really know give you the word of God, and so I know that can be kind of uh, a drain too. But um, I envy you. I envy Pastor Sam. I envy you because you are in the city. I I lived in Queens for about ten years, and uh, I moved to Jersey just to start a church. I live in Fort Lee, New Jersey, um, and uh, you know, prior to coming to New Jersey, I always said the West Coast starts after the GW Bridge, um, and I just uh, I don't know why you know I I know I, I hope I'm not offending anyone here if you are originally from Jersey, but uh, so I used to think that Jersey the only thing good about it was walls around it, not necessarily in it, and uh, and so I really miss New York. And now my family and I we we've been there for about eight years now since we started church. Uh, my wife's name is Grace. Um, I have a 13-year-old and a 11-year-old, uh, 13-year-old uh, son, 11-year-old daughter, and um, I've been out there. So any chance I get to come into the city, I, I do, I do appreciate it. What are, what can I share with you guys uh, that you probably already heard from your pastors? I figure I will just share something very simple. Um, and so I've decided to look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 9. 
verse 6 through 9. In the New York Times bestseller, Escape from Camp 14, Shin Dong-hyuk, right, is a North Korean political prisoner who escapes and defects into South Korea. Did you know North Korea's political prison camps have existed twice as long as Stalin's Soviet gulags and 12 times as long as Nazi concentration camps? And so no one born and raised in these camps are really known to have escaped. No one that is except this man named Shin Dong-yuk. And you would think that Mr. Shin's life, now that he lives in South Korea, would be so much better uh, than when he was living in the prison camps of North Korea. But in one section of this book, which is quite telling, I think, he confesses that at times he actually misses life in the camp. And the reason was because back then, even though they had nothing, even though there was incredible uh, physical oppression and you never knew when you might die, everyone wanted to live. Life was simpler, he says, because the goal of life was then just to make it through the day. But when he defected to South Korea, and though South Korea had so much more than he did in North Korea, he felt like every time he turned on the TV, there was always some news of someone who had just committed suicide. And he thought it ironic that people in North Korea who had very little and near death, everyone fought to live. But in South Korea, where they had so much more, it seemed like to him so many people wanted to die. And the reason he says is this, because along with so much blessing, life became much more complicated. And there was so much more to worry about. They worried about money. They worried about possessions. They worried about future. They worried about their health. And so he says in his book that worrying in South Korea is like a national pastime. Why talk about worry? What is worry? And what can we do about it? Just three quick points. Why talk about it? Because I'm going to guess that worrying is not just a Korean epidemic. It's also a U.S. epidemic. And there are probably a few of you here, if not more, that also are worriers. Why talk about worry? Two reasons. One, everybody worries. We worry. We worry about everything. We worry about anything. You know, in the sixth grade, I was so skinny. Every time I lie down on my bed, I could feel the ribs and count. And I would worry that maybe I was too skinny. <laughs> now I worry that I can't feel anything when I lie down. It, it, it just, I, I still worry about every little thing. You know, I, I, I worried the fact that saliva kept coming out of my mouth. And I have to keep swallowing. And I was wondering, can I stop swallowing, right? And I couldn't. So I worried, is this normal? I worry the fact that when I learn that the one muscle in your body that beats, your heart, has been beating since you were in your womb. And if that heart, if that one muscle ever skips a beat, you could die. And yet it keeps going throughout all your years of your life. And I said, oh my goodness, what happens if it stops? Right? I, I worry about when I was in elementary school, I worried about school. I worried about getting good grades, uh, getting into the best later on college or university. Uh, later on afterwards, uh, I worried about finding a job, worrying about getting a job and then getting one, and then worrying about my deadlines. Um, I worry about finding a spouse. Uh, 
I worry about maintaining marriage. Now that I have children, I worry about my parenting. I worry for my children. And now everything that I worried about when I was young, now I worry for my kids. Right? We worry about our health. We worry about now our retirement as we get older. We worry now also about our parents. I don't know what particular struggle uh, you're dealing with today, but I know one thing. All of us, to some degree, worry. We struggle with anxiety. And in the most affluent time and culture of our history, America's favorite pastime seems to be worrying. It's common to all. We all do it. And so it's a good reason to address it. But the second reason we should address it is because God addresses it. In other words, though worrying is pretty common, almost expected as it is a part of your life, it shouldn't be downplayed as something simply insignificant. The reason why God addresses worry in the Bible is because the issue for him is actually bigger than you think. There is a faith issue involved, and I think God wants us to address that, and so we need to address that. So what is worry, and what can we do about it? Well, what does this passage, this famous passage that many of you probably even have memorized, what does it tell us about worry? How do we handle it? And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to go backwards. Instead of first defining what the problem is of worrying is, uh, I'm going to go through the back door and tell you what I think Peter says is the solution to worrying so that you could better understand the Bible's problem with worry. So we start here in 1 Peter. Now, most scholars agree Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who are worrying. They were worrying about their future. They were worrying about impending persecution for their faith. And so, and so Peter writes this letter to prepare his people for the coming persecution and difficulties that they will face in the near future. This letter almost functions like a training manual for people who are expecting, being told to expect a period of trial and testing. And so, of course, these are people who are worried. They're worried. They're worried about what's to come. They're worried about the uncertain future. They're worried about the kind of struggles they might face. They're worried about whether they will not be able to survive or make it through the trials that are to come. And so in chapter 5, Peter gives us this famous and encouraging exhortation. Verse 7, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Maybe you've heard this before. You've said this. Maybe you have even quoted this. Like many Christians, the next time you start feeling an anxiety attack coming, you could flip to this verse and say, oh, well, cast all my anxieties upon the Lord because God cares for me. It could work. Instead of popping a pill, you could pop a verse and it might do the job. But if that's all you do, then you'll miss something a little deeper in these verses. Because the exhortation in verse 7, cast all your cares upon the Lord, doesn't just hang there in a vacuum. It isn't some kind of magical mantra that you kind of frame on a plaque and hang over your bedroom door that somehow makes go, go, uh, your worries go away. Peter isn't telling you like that Bobby McFerrin song in 1988, don't worry, just be happy. There are real concerns, real issues, and real worries going on here. And so there's a grammatical issue here, and I think one that provides for us a window. In the NIV, the version is simply this. Verse 7 begins as a new sentence, cast all your anxieties, right? But in the Greek, it is not a new sentence. In fact, the verb in verse 7 is a participle, and it rightly translates casting 
all your cares or all your anxiety upon him. In other words, there's a connection between what he's saying in verse 7, casting all your anxiety, and what he said in verse 6. And what does he say in verse 6? There is the command, the only command in our passage, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. So Peter is doing this. There's a connection between humbling yourself and casting all your anxieties upon the Lord. Humbling yourself will make casting your cares upon him necessary. Humbling yourself will make casting your cares upon him possible. In other words, what Peter seems to be saying in these simple verses is this. Humbling yourselves, verse 6, is his solution to the worrying or the anxiety of verse 7. Okay? Now you might be thinking this. Humility. How is that a solution to my anxieties? Humble myself. I didn't know I was being arrogant. I'm here worried because I don't know what to do. That doesn't sound like arrogance to me. That doesn't sound like I'm being cocky. So how does humbling myself become a solution to my anxiety? How is that a solution? And if that's a solution, then what does it tell me about anxiety and worry? Well, here's the thing. What does it mean to be humble? Let's try to answer that by giving you a, an example. If you're on an airplane and there's a pilot driving your, air, your flight, and let's say something happens to the pilot, all of a sudden the plane starts going down. What do you do? You need to find someone to fly that plane. The only problem is, unless you're a trained pilot, you don't know how to do it yourself. If you could, you would. But because you can't, what do you have to do? You've got to go and look for someone who can. You have to put your life in the hands of someone who's actually able to fly that plane. That plane. That's humbling. To say that I don't have the ability that someone else does and I need that person's help, that's humbling. If you make a mistake, you've got to be willing to say, I'm sorry. If you know that you are weak and inadequate, you've got to be prepared to ask for help. And so when Peter commands us to humble ourselves, he's basically saying this. In essence, he's saying this. Humble yourselves. Why? Stop thinking that you can solve everything. Stop trying to put the future in your hands and in your control. Stop thinking that tomorrow is in your control. Stop thinking that everything depends on you. Because isn't that what it means to be anxious, isn't it? That's why it, we are so troubled when we worry. That's why we worry, because deep down, at bottom, worrying is this feeling that absolutely everything depends on me. What am I going to do? How am I going to manage this? How can I prepare for this? How can I handle all of this? What if I fail? What if I don't do enough? What if I miscalculate, do a bad job, and make the wrong choice? And Peter here is saying this. When he says humble yourself, he's saying stop that. You can't handle that. You're not ultimately in control of anything. You can't know the future. You're not in control of time, people, or circumstances. You're not strong enough. You're not wise enough. You're not able enough to deal with all of this. Only God is. So humble yourself. 
Stop trying to be God in your life. Because I'm the only God in your life and you are not. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 6. That's humbling. One author puts it this way. He says, quote, You are far too small to be able to carry the burdens that unfold in this world. End quote. This is humbling because when you say this, we are saying this. We are not carried, qualified to carry these burdens. We don't have the ability to do anything about some of these issues. And we're coming before God and we're saying, Lord, only you can do this. Only you can change this. And that's why you must cast your burdens and anxieties upon him. Because it's only on the shoulders of an almighty and sovereign God that can carry those kinds of concerns. Verse 7. And so now you know what anxiety is to God. That's what anxiety and worry for Peter really is. Peter's solution here, in this passage at least, is to humble yourselves because he commands us that at its core, excessive anxiety is a sinful desire of people to try and to want to be God in their lives, to be in control and to have things their way and in their time. And in that sense, worrying isn't just sort of an attitude or a disposition of somebody. Worrying is a sin. Worrying is a sin. When you worry like this, you are communicating something about God. When you worry, you are saying, in effect, God, I don't think I could trust you. I've got to take things into my own hands. Everything depends on me. Worrying strikes a blow at the character of God. Worrying paralyzes you and makes you too upset to accomplish anything productive. Worry about tomorrow saps you of your energy to live for today. Isn't that what New Testament says? Worrying, in effect, says, God, you really don't care for me, so I need to do it on my own. So Peter's command here is to humble yourself. Jesus commands us also not to worry. Matthew chapter 6, three times he says, don't worry, don't worry, don't even start worrying. I've got you. I know what I'm doing. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer, trust me. Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 13, Jesus commands us, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. My spirit is there for you. I'm there for you. Think about, think about this, okay? Very simple, but think about this. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the Bible? then does it make sense that someone who believes in the Bible and then live as perpetual warriors? Because if you do that, you're saying one thing out of the side of your mouth and another thing out of the other. It doesn't make sense to me to say how much you believe in the Bible and what God has said and then worry about God not fulfilling what he's going to do. So Peter says, repent, humble yourself. Now, what happens when you do this? What happens when you can actually humble yourself? When you know your place, and you know God's place in your life, you immediately, instinctively start doing, verse 7. You're not qualified, so you hand over the wheel, so to speak, to one who is. You start casting your anxieties. Literally, that word casting means this, throw. You just throw it off. You just throw it off to him. Basically, it means to trust and to entrust God with your worries. 
Now, why should we do that? Well, one reason we just already talked about, because he is the only one that's qualified to do that. He's the Almighty. But there's a second reason. Look at 7. Verse 7, he says this, because he cares. He cares. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that we have a God who is not only powerful, but he's also caring. And he's not just caring, but he's powerful. Which means that he has both the ability and the desire to help us and aid us. Now, how do I know that? Well, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Look at the way he says verse 6. Humble yourselves, how? Under the mighty hand of God. Now, Peter could have just said, just humble yourselves before God. Let God be God, right? But he uses this particular phrase, under the mighty hand of God. And that phrase, if you don't know already, was frequently used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Do you you remember where you hear that from? Particularly in reference to the Exodus. When God, by his mighty hand, saved the Israelites from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Right? Or Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the house of slavery. Under the mighty hand of God is salvation language. Notice Peter uses this phrase, under the mighty hand of God, Because he wants us to appreciate the kind of God that we cast our cares on. He doesn't just have the ability to help you, but he also has the desire to do so. How do I know? Because look at what he's already done in the past to save you. Under God's mighty hand. He didn't just deliver the Israelites from Egypt to the land of Canaan, but under God's mighty hand, he delivered us from sin and death into eternal life. Under God's mighty hand, he gave us the unthinkable. He gave us his only son, Jesus Christ, who on the cross takes the penalty of our sin, gives us perfect righteousness to bring us from hell to heaven. That's the kind of God we have. Not just a powerful God with ability and strength, but he's a God who cares. A powerful God who cares and a caring God who is powerful. So humble yourselves and throw your anxieties upon him and trust him. Why? Because it's ridiculous for Christians to believe in a God who can redeem sinners, break the shackles of sin and Satan, take them from hell to heaven, put them in his kingdom, give them eternal life, and then don't think, just don't think he can get them through the next couple of days. Does that make sense? It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it, to believe God for the greater gift and then stumble and not believe Him for the lesser one. The vicissitudes and trials of life pale in comparison to the greatness of your salvation. And when you worry excessively, you are choosing to be mastered by your circumstances instead of by the truth of God. Peter wants you to realize it doesn't make sense to believe God can save you from eternal hell, but not help you in the practical matters of temporary life. But thank God. 
Because like Hebrews chapter 13 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means he'll be doing the same thing tomorrow that he was doing yesterday and today. And if you have any worry or question about the future, then look at the past. Did he sustain you then? Don't worry, he'll sustain you again in the future as well. One author puts it this way, quote, he says, Anxiety follows when we forget that God is the one who cares for us. We are not left adrift on the sea of chance, facing shipwreck on the shoals of an impersonal destiny. We are under the care of a sovereign God who controls the course of history and is intricately involved in the everyday life of each of his children, end quote. Peter wants to say that because trial is coming, Peter wants to prepare the people of God for difficulty. And so he says, humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties upon him, praying with humility, praying like this, Lord, whatever you send, whatever you give, however you order my life, it is fine with me because I want to live my life in obedience to you. You pray things like this, Lord, you are God and King. I am your servant. I know you owe me nothing, but for some reason you have given me everything in Jesus Christ. I trust you. Please give me the grace to trust you. You pray, Father, forgive me for always wanting things my way. By your mighty hand, you have created all things. And by your mighty hand, you have rescued your people. And I want to live under your mighty hand. So have mercy on me. I haven't answered all the problems of dealing with anxiety. But generally speaking, Peter seems to be saying that when we are worrying, we ought to do a few things. One, consider more the greatness of the God you worship, how much he cares. Two, add some of your own confession and repentance as a way to drive home this message of humility to your heart. And then three, Remember some of the sweet words and promises that God gives in his word to a people who are sometimes fearful and be encouraged by that. Let's pray.